You are listening to From the Sea, a podcast series produced by South China Sea Studies. This program provides valuable insights from experts around the world on geopolitical and security developments with regards to the South China Sea as an area and a connected maritime landscape. In the first episode, it is our pleasure to have Professor Richard Hedarian, senior lecturer from the University of the Philippines. Professor Hedarian is going to provide us with some thoughts on how the Philippines manages its ties with China in the South China Sea disputes under the new administration of President Ferdinand Marcos Jr., especially when Chinese vessels have been reported to be massing closer to the Philippines' Palawan Island. Thank you for joining. Pleasure, us always, always a pleasure. Yeah, there has been a lot of talk about the Ritbang Oil Exploration Project. Right. And then uh, the signal indicating that the Philippines was open to it. And then sometimes we heard news that right. the Philippines was not optimistic about it. So yep. uh, how, do you in, how do you read such kind of signals? Right. I mean, as, let me first start with the uh, joint development or joint exploration uh, proposals in the South China Sea. The problem then, uh, there fundamentally is that, you know, the Philippine Constitution uh, treats our exclusive economic zone and continental shelf kind of as part of our national patrimony or territory, at the same time we have the Philippine Arbitration Award, which negated much of the claims of China. So I don't know how can we square that with China also claiming 80% of the South China Sea, right? So the problem is harmonizing all of those different legal reference points. And, and for the Philippines, under Duterte, President Duterte, former President Duterte, there were efforts to explore joint development agreements with China, but that would have violated both our constitution and arbitration award. And that was a step too far. That's why our bureaucracy, our foreign ministry people were not comfortable with it. That's why nothing happened. So in principle, the Philippines is okay with discussions, but in practice, it's close to impossible because you might violate the Philippine constitution. So unless we change our constitution and completely ignore the arbitration award, I don't see how we can accommodate China's point of view. Naturally, we expect both Philippines and China to abide by international law and the arbitration award in 2016 sets the parameters for that. Anything in accordance with that, then we can move forward. Our position is this, China cannot approach a joint development agreement in the following terms. What is mine is mine, what is yours we share. We can't do that, right? And at the same time, exclusive economic zone of the Philippines is exclusive to the Philippines, right? So the idea of us sharing it with China, it, mm-hmm. it, it goes against the very spirit of the exclusive economic zone, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and. We don't want also a situation whereby China uses joint development agreements to essentially legitimize its nine-dash line, which was clearly invalidated by the arbitration award of 2016. So that is the dilemma. That is the dilemma. And I don't know, we, I don't know how we can actually resolve it. But both Marcus administration and Duterte administration in principle were okay with it. At least they discussed about it. But they have made it very clear it should not compromise the Philippine position. So I don't know how we're going to work that. The only way we can work that out is if we have service contracts whereby Chinese companies, Sinuk, CNPC, accept the Philippine sovereignty and then we uh, move accordingly. Will they be open to that? I'm quite doubtful. And we also have a precedence. We had the joint maritime seismic undertaking with Vietnam and China back in 2004 to 2008. That was constitutionally challenged and many people, may, you know, some critics even said that was treasonous. So I think there's a lot of uh, iffiness and hesitance also in the Philippines to kind of reenact what happened with the JMSU. So that's the context. Quickly to Marcus Jr. He's turning out more like his father, the Marcus Sr., who at the height of Cold War had very, let's say, multi-vector balanced relationship with multiple major powers. So he kept our alliance with the United States and fortified it, while at the same time was among first U.S. allies to normalize ties with Maoist China 
and also reaching out to Eastern European states and Soviet Union, right? So kind of having it, having the cake and eating it too. And he kind of pulled it off. And I think the son wants the same thing. He wants military muscle from U.S. to deal with the South China Sea challenges, but he also wants investment and money from China to build the Philippine infrastructure. In that sense, we're now more like ASEAN countries than Mexico. And I say Mexico because generally the Philippines is more like Latin American than Asian, right? In terms of our culture, psychological orientation, and also about, and also because our Foreign policy was very U.S.-centric for a very long time, but now I think it's much more balanced and multi-vector. But balance is not always good. There are times whereby you cannot be balanced because you have to make the tough decision. That is why going back to my contention, I know I'm talking too much, but going back to my contention, not making a choice is a choice in itself, and it's going to be increasingly a luxury for ASEAN countries, including the Philippines. So hard choices are going to come over the horizon if the current trajectory of U.S.-China competition and Chinese assertiveness in adjacent waters like East Sea, South China Sea, West Philippine Sea continues. Thank you so much. That covers actually a lot of ground. But I would like to just circle back a little bit to the deal. Would you say that sometimes the process is more important to the Philippines than the outcome? Well, I think that accusation is more against ASEAN than I would say Philippines. I, I mean, the Philippines has a very wild swing in its foreign policy. You go towards Arroyo, you go towards Aquino, you go towards Duterte. It's very wild swing, you know. So, so it's hard to say what is the Philippine position on ASEAN. But the reality is that ASEAN of the past 10, 15 years is an ASEAN of unanimity, of dithering, of dysfunction. Well, if you look at the ASEAN in the past 50, 60 years, you see a lot of dynamism, flexibility, intervention. So I... For instance, I always cited the case, for instance, of East Timor, whereby minilaterally key ASEAN countries decided to send peacekeeping force and help the transition of East Timor, which, of course, was something Indonesia was having problems getting over. Uh, we also have the case of Cambodia, whereby after the end of civil war and end of Indochina wars, we made Cambodian political pluralism a kind of a precondition for their membership in ASEAN. And I can go on and on and on many examples whereby, for instance, ASEAN free trade area, we got that based on ASEAN minus X formula, based on majority, not unanimity. So I think there is a misconception that ASEAN is just X, Y, and Z, when in fact ASEAN has been far from monolithic. And when we had decisive leaders, we were able to do really outside-the-box things. And my sense is that mediocre diplomacy, mediocre leadership, and cliché discourse is preventing ASEAN from fully realizing its potentials. That is why I think it's time for us to think outside the box. And that's why I'm saying we need a squad, not only quad, we need a squad of like-minded countries within ASEAN and beyond working together to jointly uphold a rules-based order. And I always say, South China Sea is not the U.S.-China competition alone. It's about international law, it's about the interests of smaller countries, and we have to work. And this is where I think friends from Europe, from Australia, Japan, have been very helpful to us because jointly, we can always communicate to the superpowers that we don't want to take a side between you, but we're also willing to exercise agency. We have agency, but if we don't recognize that, we always say we're just the grass or the two elephants, we're not going to get anything done. I always say, I don't like that allegory or whatever metaphor for ASEAN because we're not just the grass. You know, maybe U.S. and China are the elephants, but we can be the lions and the zebras and, you know, giraffes and all of that. Each of us has strategic autonomy, but we have to exercise us. That's what I'm saying. Thank you, and I'm very glad that you mentioned quad because I would like to turn my 
next questions into one of quite very recently announced initiative, which is IPMDA. Right. How do you think uh, the current Philippines administration approach IPMDA? Has it been reached out by Quad yeah. for that initiative, and how yeah. has it responded? I think there is a lot of skepticism towards Quad in ASEAN, which is not valid. In fact, there is a perception that Quad is an Asian NATO or NATO, NATO with Asian characteristic, and I know many people are very much disagreeing with that. I remember raising that question to Foreign Secretary Jai Shankar of India, and he said he completely disagrees with that. So I think there has to be some confidence building to reassure many ASEAN countries that the Quad is not like a club of big boys telling to ASEAN, hey, you're useless, let us take care of China. It's very important that they reassure us. In fact, that's exactly why we had the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific, because we didn't want to be sidelined and lose our centrality or presumption of centrality because of the Quad. But for me, let's be honest, the Quad is there precisely because the ASEAN has not been doing its job of holding the ground. So let's take it as a challenge and let's work with Quad where we have uh, shared interests and not. And one thing that really annoyed me was, you know, when the AUKUS was announced, you suddenly have one, two, three ASEAN countries crying foul and all. But what the hell were you saying when China was launching their aircraft carriers, doing massive naval exercises, doing massive militarization? So there's a lot of bashing of AUKUS and Quad, but that's not balanced against what's happening on the ground in terms of, you know, what countries like China are doing. All right, thank you. I, I know thank I said so a lot much. of controversial thank things. Let's keep it there. Thank you very much. See you next My time. My pleasure. That is for this week. Stay tuned for our new episodes, which will be released on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Thank you for listening.